Welcome back to the program. Like it or not, the nature of our society, our culture today, is focused inward. Walk down any street versus 40 years ago, and instead of looking outward, we're looking down and inward at our phones, at our images, at our internal world. In a culture where self-branding is celebrated, where selfies rule and millennials are self-absorbed, is it any wonder that narcissism seems rampant? But is this just a societal phase resulting in the kind of prolonged adolescence that A.O. Scott talked about in his brilliant New York Times essay? Or is it a clinical epidemic that needs more serious attention? And what is it about our society that's contributing to this? And how do we handle it in our personal and professional lives? We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Jeffrey Kluger. He's a senior editor and writer at Time Magazine. He's co-author of the bestsellers Apollo 13 and The Sibling Effect. It is my pleasure to welcome Jeffrey Kluger here to talk about The Narcissist Next Door, understanding the monster in your family, in your office, in your bed, in your world. Jeffrey Kluger, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Great to have you here. Is there an epidemic of narcissism in our society today? Or are we simply going through a kind of narcissistic state as far as the culture is concerned? Well, I think it's unfortunately less transitory than that. Um, researchers have, who have been tracking this have noticed that, that narcissism scores on the, the narcissistic personality inventory, which is sort of the standard test, have been going up steadily since 1979, and they're about 30% higher than they were back then. Now, social media, Facebook, Twitter, everything else about that allows us to click and share um, even the smallest minutiae in our lives has certainly turbocharged that. I think of it as sort of a rocket engine. It's become the engine bell that's helped blow this out with particularly propulsive force. But we were, we were a far more narcissistic nation even before social media came along. Is it a kind of, of chicken or the egg situation in which we've become more narcissistic and the, the tools that have emerged to do that, things like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all these things, which certainly aren't to blame for any of this, but are simply the tools of it, that that then reinforces the narcissism within the culture and we're just constantly climbing this narcissistic ladder as a society. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. It becomes a mutually reinforcing loop. Um, sometimes I analogize uh, social media to a narcissist as what an open bar is to a drunk. You're going to get wasted anyway, but this helps you do it a whole lot faster and a whole lot more and makes it a little bit more dangerous. It's like getting Jack Daniels piped straight to your <laughs> desktop. Define what we mean by narcissism. You talk a, a little bit earlier about it being really a collection of, of personality traits, eight, nine, ten various traits that make up this continuum of narcissism. Well, that's right. Now, if we, uh, and there are a whole lot of different definitions of narcissism all the way up at the clinical end, narcissistic personality disorder. That afflicts, fortunately, only about one to three percent of the population. And that is this toxic mashup of grandiosity, entitlement, and a lack of empathy. And that last one is very important because if you're misbehaving, it's a lot harder to continue doing so if you're able to empathize with the people around you. If you don't have any care or even the sensitivity to realize that you're hurting other people, you, you, you go right ahead doing what you're doing. But that's only way, way at the top end, all the way down in a long continuum down the spectrum you see what I call lowercase n narcissism. 
that these are the people who are entitled but not in such a way that they're wholly dysfunctional. These are the people who are grandiose, whose egos are just overbearing, overweening, but they're still able to function. These are people who also have a charm, have a charisma, have an energy, which is what makes narcissists so dangerous because they're able to insinuate themselves into your heart and into your mind and into your wallet often, very often into your bed. I say narcissists literally charm the pants off you, and they often do. They don't call the next day, but they, they'll do it anyway. And before you know it, in one way or another, your pocket has been hit. Now, one of the reasons narcissists are so successful at this is because the majority of people who are charming and charismatic and engaging and seem interested in what you're saying really are all those things. So you believe them, you trust them, and they turn out to be the real deal. Narcissists get to free ride on the good rep of the good people, and as a result, they sort of come in under the radar. And before you know it, if you're a search committee, you've hired a narcissist. If you're a, someone on the dating market, you're dating or you've married a narcissist. If you're a, a, an employer, you've, you've hired a, a, a senior manager, narcissist, and if you're a nation, you've elected a narcissist, and that's a problem. Is it a problem, really? Because even if you've hired a narcissist, let's put it in, in the context of the workplace, in many cases, that person that you've hired is going to be more aggressive, more ambitious, more successful, more striving to accomplish something because it enhances their image, but also it does good for the organization. That's a terrific point, and that is exactly the point that some of the business psychologists I talk to make as well, that narcissists are very, very good and good for the company in what's called the emerging phase of any project. So if you're a narcissistic CEO, you are good in a, the case of a startup because you've got the energy and you've got the blinders that allow you to say, I don't care how improbable this project is, I am going to make this the best smartphone, the best magazine, the best television show in the world because I can do it. And you simply overlook the obstacles to it. People who aren't narcissistic don't do that. Similarly, an, a narcissistic employee in the emerging phase of a project, you're in the room, you're batting around ideas, you're selling ideas to the client or to the boss. This is where narcissists shine. And they really do terrifically well at introducing new ideas, at launching new products. The problem comes later with the work that everybody else knows how to do but narcissists don't do. When you have to go back to your office and there's no chance for glory and you manage the account or you keep the company running or you have to figure out how to deal with you know, Wall Street's expectations for the third quarter and this isn't about standing at a trade show at the App Mac Expo and announcing a new product. It's all about doing the paperwork of running your company. That's where narcissists tend to fall apart because they take gambles in order to continue getting that thrill, get the drug of public recognition, because there's nobody there when you're working on the monthly budget to applaud your work. So you tend to do it quickly and you don't do it as well. And that's also when you begin to grate on other employees or on your employees because you tend to slough off. You tend not to do your work. You tend to be brusque with people. You've lost interest. So that's the problem. 
Of course, the other side of that is managing around narcissism, that it's the responsibility of a country or a board of directors or a CEO to understand and to bring out the best qualities of all the people and all the assets that are available and use the narcissist effectively just as you would use the accountant effectively. That's right. And one of the things that, uh, that, that business psychologists do say is, particularly if you are a boss, Keep rotating your narcissists. Keep recognize who your narcissists are and get them off projects when the emerging phase is over. Bring them in to the, the, the next department and let them turbocharge that group. Bring them into the, the, a unit that's cratering and let them get that unit back on its feet and keep them going. CEOs, it's a little harder because you've got a whole company and the company isn't a series of, of units. It's the overall company. So, you know, you either may want to have short-term CEOs, you know, a few years, and then if you find out this CEO is a narcissist, swap him or her out when it's time for, for the management phase of a company, say Microsoft, after, after its first 10 years or so, um, you know, bring in a different CEO at that point. But it is absolutely true that there are ways to best use your narcissist, and in, in the case of countries as well, I mean, you know, once the somebody is a president, uh, that person is a president, it's hard for voters to say, okay, we're going to manage you now, although things like midterm elections do <laughs> offer, you know, a sort of intermediate corrective. But, you know, Bill Clinton, again, he, he is, you know, one of the most brilliantly narcissistic politicians in history, and he was both good and he was bad, and the country elected him twice with, you know, two very considerable margins both times because they thought, you know, he may do crazy things, and he wound up doing exactly what his critics were relying and wait for him to do, which is having narcissistically entitled um, uh, sex scandal. But for the most part, he did a great job. Is it necessary in our society today to succeed in anything, whether it's business, politics, sports, or even interpersonal relationships? Is the society adapted in such a way that a certain degree of narcissism is necessary for survival of the fittest in any area of society. Absolutely, and this is why babies, and even fetuses, by the way, now I'll explain that in a second, are overweening narcissists. Keep in mind, a fetus is an alien organism. A fetus is, in all respects, a parasitic organism. It is feeding off the larger organism that's gestating it and doing damage to that larger organism. All right, that's metaphorical narcissism. That's not the real deal. The baby doesn't even have any sentience at a certain point. But once a baby is born, that kind of all take, no give, all emotion, no empathy, that defines the baby. Certainly it defines the infant. It defines the toddler as well. And it's only at age you know, two or so that babies begin learning, okay, this is a much more reciprocal world than I thought it was. I have to share I can't take without giving, and I at least have to say thank you. And by the way, I have the power to hurt other people. Kids will think nothing of hitting another child over the head with a set of blocks, but will howl in outrage when they get hit. Well, after a little while, they begin to put two and two together and say, oh, it felt as bad to him as it feels to me. So we move away from our innate narcissism. But as we move through adulthood, it remains essential. If you don't have the confidence, if you don't have the, the assertiveness to go out and get a job, if you don't have the assertiveness to walk into a party or a singles bar and say, 
you know, I am pretty darn good looking and I'm going to close the sale tonight and I'm going to find someone to date or I'm going to take somebody home tonight. You need that level of ego. You need that level of monomaniacal focus to succeed in the world. It is for things like the presidency, it's the table stakes. You have to be a narcissist to be a, a president. You have to be a functional narcissist to be a performer, to be a CEO. But in all parts of our lives, if you don't have some narcissism, you, you tend to, to languish and, and fail to thrive. And yet one of the interesting aspects of this, as you talk about, is that 60, 70 or more percent of the traits that are inherent in a narcissist are heritable. Well, that's right. But again, that's a tricky thing because it's not here are the 10 traits and six to seven of them are heritable, though that is, it's, it's, that's a reasonable way of looking at it. But what it more is, is that there is a 64 to 77% heritability component to narcissism, which means that you have a narcissistic predisposition. But as with all other genetic conditions, there's no such thing as a single gene. You come with a, pre- with a suite of genes that give you a predisposition, then other things will intervene to potentiate that. Then your life experiences will bring that narcissism out in you, which is why two people raised in the exact same environment, say non-identical twins or ordinary siblings as opposed to, to identical twins who have the same genes, why two kids of the same gender and roughly the same age can come up under the same roof with roughly the same circumstances and treatment by their parents, and one will develop narcissism as, as he or she gets older and the other one won't. But, of course, as you talk about, the deck is stacked from an evolutionary perspective in favor of the narcissist and the continuation of narcissism. Well, that's right. And, again, that ability of narcissists to breed so successfully, which they do a whole lot, means they leave a lot of little narcissists behind. Also, the things that narcissists radiate are the things we tend to look for evolutionarily. We do look for physically attractive people, or at least people who make the most of whatever their physical attraction is, because those are signs of fertility and good health. Now, we're not thinking of it that way. We're just thinking this person is is hot. We do look for people who are engaging, because that indicates a certain measure of intelligence and energy, and it's just plain fun. We look for people who will reflect well on us. That's not so much evolutionary as much as it is simple human ego, though you could argue that there are reasons that ego is adaptive as well. But, you know, it's, that's what the trophy wife is about. That's what the wealthy husband is about. I realize I'm stereotyping a little bit here, but, you know, it reflects well on the 50-year-old man who's just married a 25-year-old third wife because that makes him look fertile and, and, and attractive. Similarly, the woman who marries a very rich man, well, you know, she looks better and she looks more powerful. I do say, again, these are broad stereotypes, but they do hold. Um, when, the, when the culture at large thinks well of us, we think well of ourselves. And if that has to be reflected, a reflected excellence through our spouse, well, you know, we'll deal with it. What do we know then about the degree to which narcissists are attracted to each other? Well, that's a really good question, and, and studies point in a lot of different directions. On the one hand, uh, two narcissists generally are like two positive poles of a magnet. They really should repel each other because they just don't fit well enough. The narcissist needs constant gratification, constant reinforcement, constant validation, and constant attention. And if two people are demanding that, nobody is going to get it. You have to have somebody 
who's much more self-contained, whose ego needs are more modest, and who has a high degree of tolerance to feed and water the narcissist in the way the narcissist needs it constantly. Um, on occasion, two narcissists will come together for a couple of reasons. There has to be at least an implicit understanding that we are not in this for real depth. We're not in this for real reciprocity. Now, you know, spend enough time with somebody and some of that will grow, but it's much more about we're in this as a corporation. The two of us are highly egotistical people, highly ambitious people. Uh, we are in it in order to express that in ourselves, and somehow you being by my side helps foster that in me. That's why often you'll have two gorgeous narcissists who will wind up together. Because, you know, if, if, if you're a model and your husband is just ordinary looking or vice versa, that doesn't reflect as well on you. But, you know, one gorgeous person on a red carpet is, is striking. Another, a, a gorgeous couple on a red carpet are staggering. It's the reason, you know, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie have attracted so much attention, at least one of the reasons. Now, I'm not necessarily saying they're narcissistic, though. In their field, they have to be somewhat. But you can have very va you can have vapid narcissists who come together because they fill a certain uh, fill a certain utilitarian each other. What it really addresses also is the way we accept narcissism in certain places and not others. We we don't think anything extraordinary about narcissism in politics or in Hollywood or in sports or even in certain relationships among certain people. And yet, we, we have more disdain for it in other parts of the population. Talk a little about that. Well, it's funny, because we do, and we shouldn't. And I think about, sometimes, I think about, say, religion, um, or I think about medicine. You know, we think that a doctor should be an other-directed healer, somebody who is much more empathic than egotistical. And similarly, a religious leader should be the same way. And certainly a, somebody who, say, a civil rights leader should be the same way. And yet, you know, you look at Martin Luther King, you look at Nelson Mandela, you look at, at Mahatma Gandhi, if they didn't have narcissistic components in them, they couldn't have stood before crowds of hundreds of thousands or millions and moved entire nations. There are people who are as noble and virtuous and as pious as they are, but don't have the appetite for standing in front of a crowd like they did. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying that those three men, or Mother Teresa for that matter, when they stood before people and received applause and adulation and admiration for what they were doing, that feels good. That's okay for that to feel good. And if it feels even better for them than it does for average people because they have a narcissistic component in their personality... Well, great. I'm glad it did, because we wouldn't have had Mother Teresa and Nelson Mandela and all the others if they didn't have that element to them. Similarly, I like to look at Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin. They developed the two polio vaccines. Those vaccines turned out to be complementary. The world has actually benefited from having both of them as opposed to just one or the other, because they work in different ways. But, you know, they may have saved millions of babies over the last 50 years, but part of what impelled them was that they were in a foot race. Who was going to be first, Salk or Sabin? One of my books was about Jonas Salk, and I read through the correspondence. And, you know, there was a whole lot of snarkiness between the two of them because they both knew one of us is, is fine to be first. Well, great. So there was a narcissistic component in them. 
terrific. That meant they worked longer hours, they worked harder, they spent more time at it, they fought more for, for grants and resources, and the vaccines were developed sooner. So the whole world benefited. One of the things that arguably the world doesn't benefit from is something you talk about, this idea of tribal narcissism. Talk a little about that. Tribal narcissism is narcissism writ large. If I'm a narcissist, I believe I am better than other people. I'm more talented. I'm smarter. I'm handsomer than other people. And I am more entitled to resources, the big house or the big paycheck, than other people are. Well, that's insufferable enough. But when it's your tribe that says, our people are better, our people are smarter, our songs are nicer, our language is prettier, and therefore we will be better stewards of the resources. Therefore, we're entitled to the land, we're entitled to the oil, we're entitled to the water and, and, and the fishing more than other people are. Well, that's where, you get, uh, that's where you get wars. That's where you get resource wars. You also, when you say our culture is better than this culture, our religion is better than this religion, that's when you get blood. That's when you get bias and racism and all of the other terrible things that come from it. It all comes from the same gene pool. Now, there are plenty ways of of letting off some of this energy. This is what sports are about. You know, we go to stadiums, and it's it's kabuki war. And obviously, football is the best example with it, as George Carlin used to say. It's the bomb and the blitz and, and gaining ground and everything else. But all sports is about putting, especially team sports, putting on costumes. So it's very much like you know the blue and the gray in the Civil War. We put on costumes. We root for our teams. There are colors. We paint our faces. The language of sports is all about dominance and slaughter. But at the end of the day, you go home, you take your face paint off, and you deal with the fact that your team may have just lost the Super Bowl. That's a good way of dealing with these emotions without, in fact, getting into blood feuds over it. So there's something to be said for tribal narcissism. It also impels nations to achieve great things. If the U.S. hadn't been tribally narcissistic, we would have never gotten people on the moon. We would have never had a space program. That was a very good thing for the world. You know, competitive China merged to the world, and one of the things they've done is done is make their impression cultural. Classical music is huge in China. All right, well, they've done great things for classical music. If part of the reason is that they want the world to recognize how great China is, terrific. Their symphony orchestras are fantastic, so we're all benefiting. How early can we spot narcissists? Well, again, you can spot it in the womb, um, but when you spot it for real, um, studies show, studies have looked at kids who do or don't respond narcissistically to things. There was one study in the the researchers got blowtorch for it because it was actually a rather, a rather uh, cruel little study. Um, toddlers, a toddler was in a room with a researcher, and the researcher gave the toddler a toy and said, now this is a very special toy from when I was a little girl, so you have to be careful with it. Well, in fact, there's nothing special at all about the toy except that it was rigged to fall apart the second the child touched it. So the child touched it, it would fall apart, and the researcher would say just two words. She would say, oh my. Now, that was meant to indicate to the child that a bad thing just happened, but not to contaminate the child's behavior in any other way. Now, some kids, most kids, felt terrible about it, and they went through all these very sweet and very painful things to deal with it. 
They would cover their faces. They'd hug themselves. They'd turn away. They'd drop their heads. They would pet the, the, the researcher's hand. They would do all sorts of things that indicated they felt terrible. Other kids were indifferent. They would laugh. They would play with pieces of the thing. They would not care. They, just, they, they would then go on to play with something else. Now, that didn't mean that child was a narcissist. But when those kids were followed up five and ten years later, the ones who had shown empathy early on, the ones who had felt bad, did tend to be the ones who were doing better in school and who had fewer behavioral problems. Because guilt is a good break on our behavior. The only good thing you can say about this, well, you can say a few good things about the study because it re revealed interesting things, but the, the only good thing in terms of the kids is that their suffering didn't last very long and it was only after a minute or so that the researcher would say, well, let me go see if I can get this fixed. And she would come back in the room a minute later with an entirely different toy but that looked the same in perfect working order. So the kids felt better. But the researchers got blowtorched online. The study came out. It's also a way to figure out which kids are going to wind up on Wall Street. Well, <laughs> that's actually, there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, you know, Bernie Madoff and the baby have, have a whole lot in common. Bernie Madoff was, you know, one of his... Uh, his jailmates said to him, you know, that um, that stealing money from old ladies was a messed up thing to do, though he used stronger language than that, obviously. And Madoff's quote was, well, that's what I did. And all right, Bernie, even now you're doing 150 years in prison and you don't feel bad because you and the toddler have a lot in common. Jeffrey Kluger, the book is The Narcissist Next Door, Understanding the Monster in Your Family, in Your Office, in Your Bed, in Your World. Jeffrey, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Thanks. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.